Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Jared Serby, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up on this hour of the Federal Drive, what can be done in the public health sector to combat misinformation? Also, TSA's chief of staff puts the emphasis less on chief and more on staff. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. First up, though, unless Congress acts, most federal employees will likely see a 5.2% pay raise in 2024. But even that big of a boost won't be enough to offset a growing wage gap between the federal and private sectors. That's at least what the Federal Salary Council says in its latest report. Here with more is Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, who's been covering the latest numbers. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me, Jared. So what is this latest reported gap? So during 2023, federal employees were earning, on average, about 27.5% less when it comes to salary alone uh, than their private sector colleagues or counterparts, those with similar types of positions. This is an annual measure that the Federal Salary Council uh, reports on, and this is actually a 3% increase this year compared to the pay disparity of about 24% or so that the council reported for 2022. So that is a pretty big number, and you know it is important to note that that has been at least above 20% in terms of how big that gap is between federal workers and private sector workers since 2007. Uh, It's not the biggest it's ever been back in 2015, for example, that pay disparity was nearly 35%. So it's been up and down, but we have seen it trending upward for the last three years or so. And of course, perennial debates around various studies comparing private sector and public sector compensation. Um, So it's worth talking about a bit here how the Salary Council measures, you know, its version of that disparity. So the council takes data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and from the Department of Labor, and basically they put together, um, you know, a comparison between federal and private sector jobs that have similar job duties and similar just positions. Uh, And it's purely a comparison of the wages. That's important to note because, as you alluded to, not everyone agrees with the way that the council calculates that federal private uh, wage gap. So you have some conservative organizations, for example, saying that if you account for uh, benefits like healthcare, retirement, and you look at different types of data, that they argue federal employees are actually paid more. Of course, that's just one perspective here. But for the councils, uh, the way that they measure it, it is based on, as I said, Bureau of Labor Statistics and Department of Labor data. And based on that measuring rubric, why is there such a big gap? It is complicated, but there's, you know, several different reasons that could go into it. So for one, there's some legal pay caps and pay compression that federal employees see on the upper ends of the general schedule system. The system is also a pretty rigid pay system in general. And you also have the lack of the full implementation of a law Uh, called the Federal Employee Pay Comparability Act, or FEPCA. This is from a law from 1990 that basically allows the government to spend uh, as much funding as they need to give federal employees a big enough raise to bring the wage gap down to 5%, but that was only implemented for just a year or two, and since 1994, no president has actually signed off on a pay raise that large. So if you have... Uh, what you call alternative pay plans for decades, offering smaller 
pay raises over time, over years to federal employees, you're going to see this wage gap grow. Of course, it also depends on the salaries and the wages for private sector workers. Those fluctuate as well on that end. So that's why you get that kind of up and down from both sides of it. Uh, but at the end of the day, that uh, that gap is growing partly because of FEPCA, that law from 1990. And it's estimated that at this point, it would cost $22 billion to bring that wage gap down to 5% from the 27.5% that we have currently. Hmm. And, and as we've seen in some of your previous coverage, the, the council does more than just studying pay gaps. What What other recommendations did they make this year? So they sent a list of nine recommendations that they're going to send off to what's called the president's pay agent. This is another uh, board that's going to review their recommendations from the council. And Jared, just a side note to mention that the Federal Salary Council has uh, three presidentially appointed members, as well as some union leaders who look at the uh, wages of federal employees and make suggestions. They generally, if occasionally not every single year, but they will occasionally add uh, recommendations for new localities, new pay localities across the U.S. They did not add add any that um, would be for 2025. That's the year that they would be doing this report for. Um, But they did recommend a couple interesting things this year. So one was to consider a different way for how annual federal pay raises are calculated So rather than going just with the president's suggestion, they suggested that you could use the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Cost Index, or ECI, as the base pay raise, and then add up to a 1% locality pay boost on top of that. That would at least, you know, not cause the wage gap to grow any larger, maybe not necessarily make it smaller. But if you're comparing the ECI, which measures uh, salaries of private sector workers, and you give the same pay raise on average to uh, federal sector workers as well, I guess their idea is that that would at least prevent the wage gap from getting any bigger. Um, You know, it's not that's, of course, just a recommendation. So not to say that that would actually happen, but it's it's one suggestion that they did uh, bring up this year. Okay, and then as far as the next step in these recommendations, including around the pay gap, et cetera, what, what, where do these go from here other than sitting on a shelf? So these will go up to the president's pay agent. This is a three-person panel. Uh, as I mentioned, it's the Office of Personal Management, the Office of Management and Budget, and the Department of Labor. And each year, the council, after this report comes out, they will send uh, their recommendations to the pay agent, who then reviews all of those uh, suggestions and then either chooses to adopt the recommendations or not. So, for example, this year we have uh, new pay localities that are going to be added for 2024. Uh, So if there's other recommendations similar to that, they would be adopted for 2025 if the pay agent agent chooses to do that. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jared. And you can find Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead on Federal News Radio, TSA's chief of staff puts the emphasis less on chief and more on staff. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Back at the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. 
for the agency most visibly on the front lines of security, the Transportation Security Administration, in some ways, is the face of the federal government. More than its technology, its people make it tick. They're the main concern of the TSA's chief of staff. As millions of Americans prepare to fly this holiday season, Federal News Network's Tom Temin checked in with TSA's Holly Canaveri. Let's start with that deputy. What does the deputy administrator do, especially after you were chief of staff? Myself, along with the administrator, we lead the 60,000-person agency and um, support them to ensure they have the tools and resources necessary to do our job. Well, but functionally, I mean day-to-day, if the administrator is the one that takes the heat and goes to Capitol Hill and so on, you kind of keep the trains running? Correct. Or the planes uh, flying, no, I should no say. No pun intended. Correct. Yes. And we are really focused on people, partnerships, and technology. So ensuring every day we are focused on all three of those. And that we said at the outset that as chief of staff, you were concerned with staff more than the chief side of that. And this idea of partnerships among people. Tell us more about your philosophy and some of the activities you you had under that kind of rubric of partnership. Partnerships is uh, critical to TSA and our mission. Um, So we have a number of partners, federal partners, of course, um, airports, airlines, rail, mass transit, uh, law enforcement, uh, our international partners, pipelines, um, and also labor. So we have quite a few partners in our mission space to ensure the security of the transportation systems. And what is your way of going about strengthening those partnerships so that because they can be, that connection can be adversarial or it can be, oh, here they, here they are. Absolutely. Having the conversation, bringing in early and talking to each other and finding areas where we can mutually agree and move forward together. Well, give us an example. Say airports probably are annoyed, you know, because TSA is always reconfiguring. There's new technology that comes in, new line management techniques, and they seem easy to say, well, it's going to stick this machine in, let's try this way of lines. But it's huge logistics and infrastructure work that is often carried out by airport staff or their contractors. So there's interplay there. Correct. And we work with these partners early. So well before construction projects begin, we um, are meeting, talking about configurations, um, the security setup, um, and how we can work together to ensure an efficient and secure uh, experience for the traveling public. I mean, what drives airport operators? Those are sort of quasi-governmental authorities in most cases where even their own lines of authority are kind of hard to untangle. Absolutely. So um, efficiency, first and foremost, ensuring that providing an efficient, secure experience. So the experience for the traveling public, that really is what drives us both, frankly, to ensure that the traveling public has a good experience and it is a safe experience. And I know the TSA as a operating philosophy is always trying to shave time off of the screening process. People may not understand it from the outside, but one second of faster screening or five seconds per individual, you know, adds up to a lot of shorter lines at the end of the day. How do you translate that down to the people that actually are doing the work? If you have a theoretical approach, this is going to be great but it's being administered by all sorts of people at all sorts of locations. Right. We work closely with our partners to ensure that we meet our wait time standards. So for the standard line, 
it's 30 minutes or less. And for the TSA pre-check line, it is 10 minutes or less. And so we do all work together. And I think some travelers who maybe haven't been traveling uh, for quite some time, perhaps pre-pandemic, um, might not be familiar with some of the new technology that TSA has been working with our partners to put in place. Um, so we are making improvements and some checkpoints have new machines that allow passengers, for example, to scan their own IDs. And um, also we some airports have our new computed tomography, otherwise known as our CT machines, which produce high quality 3D images that can be rotated uh, up to 360 degrees for more thorough visual analysis of the carry-on bag contents. And that actually will also speed through the process. There'll be less manual bag searches. We're speaking with Holly Conavari. She is the Deputy Administrator of the Transportation Security Administration. And I want to ask you about labor relations because they were rough for a long time. And now AFGE is in there. What are they like? And how do you how do you effectuate policy and procedural changes when there's kind of a third element in the in the what was a binary equation of you and the employees? Now you've got the union in there. The union has been a great partner, speaking of partnerships, and we are working on a collective bargaining agreement, and we are very excited about the path forward. You mentioned our workforce. So we are have implemented our new pay plan here at TSA, and it has been, uh, the impact has been tremendous. We have seen historic retention levels at, at this point, and then um, we have great staffing, especially in, in anticipation of this busy holiday travel season. It's a technical job that they do, the screeners, the people on the on the front line there, and it's probably the most seen and most encountered federal agency at a personal level for most Americans. How much does human relations skill come into what it is that you are looking for in individuals who want to become TSOs with the understanding they have some pretty technical, sometimes, you know, law enforcement types of activities they also have to do. So we have a a very robust training regimen for our transportation security officers to include 200 hours of training and a um, module on the customer experience. So how they engage with the public, because as you mentioned, we do see well over 2 million passengers a day. Yeah, and now we are in a holiday season where Americans are traveling back almost to pre-pandemic levels and the planes are packed and the airports are going to be packed. What kind of planning, if anything, is it just a matter of having sufficient staffing or what else does TSA do to anticipate Thanksgiving, Christmas season, et cetera, where you're going to have mobs? I'd like to talk about the holiday travel volumes because you are right. I think seven out of our top 10 heaviest travel days have been in 2023. So aviation travel has fully returned to what it was before the pandemic. Um, The three busiest days during the Thanksgiving travel period are Tuesday and the Wednesday prior to Thanksgiving and the Sunday after. So we are still running our projections, but we are anticipating the busiest Thanksgiving on record for TSA. Wow. So to your point, how are we, how are we supporting this and are we ready? Um, Bottom line is we are absolutely ready for you. All operational checkpoint lanes will be open, staffed, and operational to handle the holiday surge. Some local circumstances may cause higher wait times, and we will work diligently with our airline and airport partners to minimize those. 
Let me ask you this. It's my opinion as a two million mile flyer that the airlines have completely flubbed their incentives so that everybody's dragging gigantic and heavy bags of junk on board that should be down below. And you could put a nice felt hat overhead and not get it mushed to shreds. So that devolves to the operation the TSA has to do. Do you ever wish, by golly, charge people to carry on and, and figure out how to do good baggage handling? TSA works with our partners pretty well. And I think we have some great holiday tips for those carry-on bags. Other than don't bring them. <laughs> There is, uh, you can absolutely bring your carry-on bags and uh, you can park, pack smartly. That's it? And don't bring guns and knives? Correct. And kidding aside, we can't have firearms coming onto planes routinely. Does it ever amaze you? I mean, TSA publishes tweets and pictures and statistics on how many people try it anyway. What is with that? How do you get that across so that people don't try it? So TSA continues to work with our partners to remind travelers before they arrive at the airport checkpoints that firearms are not permitted in the passenger cabin of the aircraft or in accessible property such as carry-on bags <clears throat> or in the secure areas of the airport. We've increased civil penalties to nearly $15,000. Passengers lose TSA pre-check eligibility for five years. And they're subject to enhanced screening and potential criminal charges, depending on the local firearm laws. We are continuing to explore our authorities in this space. Um, for those that wish to travel with a firearm, they are permitted in checked baggage. They must be unloaded in a locked hard size case along with ammunition. And they must be declared to the airline when checking the bag at the ticket counter. When passengers bring firearms to TSA checkpoints, it leads to longer wait times for others because the TSOs have to stop lane and contact local law enforcement to resolve the security issue. So you've been at TSA a while now through a couple of administrators. It sounds like it's a place that's more than just a job for you. Correct. This is really a calling. Um, I truly believe in the mission and the people. That's TSA Chief of Staff Holly Canaveri speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, what can be done in the public health sector to combat misinformation? That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. In for Tom. Back on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. You most likely have seen it over the past couple years. Your old friend from high school sharing that link that shows a new secret way to prevent COVID-19 that ended up being an ad for modern-day snake oil. Yes, health misinformation exploded over the course of the pandemic, overwhelming governments, public health authorities, and social media platforms looking to fight it. A new study looked into how well health information is researched by those institutions and the methods they use to fight it. One of the study's authors is Stephanie Friedhoff, professor at Brown University School of Public Health. She talked with Federal News Network's Eric White. So a while ago, we started looking at misinformation, COVID-19 misinformation research to try to understand what lessons we could learn from all the interventions that were applied during the pandemic and those that were actually studied so we could see what worked and what didn't. We wanted to uh, create a, an evidence-based playbook for practitioners to understand how to deal with health misinformation. We found around 50 studies that researched this 
uh, with real participants. We excluded things like studies that were modeling this because we really wanted to see uh, the impact on, on people in um, those types of situations. And we learned that out of the 50 studies that we found, so misinformation remains a leading challenge, especially health misinformation. And we thought we should look at the research that's available, especially studies that were done during the COVID-19 pandemic, when a lot of interventions were fielded and new things were tried, to understand what can we learn from them? How can we get better at responding to health misinformation? And um, how do we know what works and what doesn't? Gotcha. When look- so what types of intervention methods did do you find that most you know public health authorities were using and were any of them even effective? So to our surprise, we found that a lot of these papers used such different outcome measures and such different ways to look at the challenges that by and large, we couldn't really compare the evidence. There were 50 studies which used like 47 different ways of of looking at the pie. Uh, We looked at, for example, the misinformation that the studies put in front of people and it was very different. Some Some studies looked at, you know, misinformation such as gurgling with salt water will prevent you from getting COVID or curing COVID and others shared full blown conspiracy theories. So it was hard to compare that evidence. We did find some evidence for interventions that are called debunks. So after an an item has been put out that is clearly wrong, efforts to uh, debunk that information in certain contexts will make people less likely to uh, believe in the accuracy of that content. And then also accuracy prompts or nudges. These are ways in which people are asked to assess a piece of information and after that, I showed different types of misinformation, and it, the studies show that people are then less likely to believe in the accuracy of such content when they've been prompted previously to think critically about content. Yeah. Is there a big push from a lot of health agencies in dealing with this problem? Because it's, you know, you don't get into the medical field usually thinking about, oh, this is how I have to convince people not to listen to things that are definitely not good for them. Well, one key outcome of our study was that only 18% of the papers we could find on this topic actually measured any public health related outcomes. Uh, such as intent to vaccinate or self-reported mask wearing or intent to pay for an unproven treatment. If we don't study the impact on public health, then we also won't know what works in public health. What is clear is that not enough people from the public health world, both experts and practitioners, are included in the design of these types of studies. Responding to health misinformation has become a major part of working in public health. People were not trained for it. It is really a crisis that exploded during the COVID-19 pandemic. And people had to learn on the fly. There have been reports of worker burnout because of this. Uh, There's a lot of efforts going on to try to increase capacity, to try to help people navigate these types of situations. It's been particularly challenging when you are a local public health practitioner and uh, you go to hearings and meetings, as you should. You want to be in community 
and emotions are high around these types of issues. But there's a, a large and growing need to both support our public health practitioners as they take on this extra additional challenge that is really hard. And also for everybody who works in public health to play a role in cleaning up our information spaces. Yeah, can we discuss the big part of this, which is just the advent of social media? Um, you know, back in the old days, all they really had to combat was you know, ads in, in trademark publications and things like that. But now you've just got so many voices that are into the realm of public health. Um, what effect did the social media platforms have on these studies that you looked at? So the challenge with social media platforms is that many of them don't share their data. So we need to understand that a lot of these studies were experiments with people as opposed to watching what works and what doesn't or what is playing out on social media in real life in real time. We don't have good enough data often to answer those types of questions. It is very clear that the world has changed dramatically from when we had a few very curated information sources to this wide world where everybody has a voice. And in general, right, we all know that's that's a good thing. The social media companies now have a responsibility uh, as this is common infrastructure. This is this, this information space is a public good that we share. And we're really in the early stages of adapting to this technological change and trying to find uh, ways to understand it, understand the harms regulated, as we know, there's a, a there's a lot of conversations in a lot of countries going on about how to best do this. But social media is the new place where most people get their information. We now have a generation that doesn't Google necessarily to find information. They search on TikToks and other platforms that they use. And those are important changes that we need to understand when we try to meet people's information needs, when we try to get good information to where people are actually making sense of things in the world. Yeah, and that provides a nice segue into what is the main takeaway, which is that as the avenues for misinformation get more diverse, the ways to combat misinformation also have to get more diverse, and so do the studies that look into misinformation. So what does that mean by making the studies more diverse? What did you all have in mind with that? Well, um, our study looked at what our study also looked at what types of delivery mechanisms did the different studies use to um, share the misinformation? Was it text only? Was it text and a picture? Was it audio? Was it video? And what you learn when you look at that is that we're mostly currently studying uh, text and uh, maybe image-based misinformation, but we're not studying video-based misinformation. Only 6% of all the interventions that we looked at uh, used video formats at all. Given the the rise and the prominence of video and the the increasing amount of video based misinformation that's out there, there is a real need to improve our our ways to look at this. More broadly speaking, we really don't have good science right now to understand how misinformation truly impacts people. You could look at this the same way we look at a novel disease when it first comes out. You you know it's there and it's creating some impact, but you don't know exactly for whom and how and in which ways. And that is where our research needs to become much more granular 
and become much more elaborate. Uh, we need to invest in this type of research. We also currently have a, a gross underinvestment in this type of research. Doing this work will really also help us overcome some of the politicization because people are worried about censorship and, you know, who who's who decides what is misinformation and what isn't. And by being able to better articulate what the impact is on people, we believe uh, we can also overcome some of these current challenges that come from just, you know, not knowing exactly what is going on. Stephanie Friedhoff is a professor at Brown University's School of Public Health, speaking there with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview along with a link to her study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, why there's not a huge cause for optimism for the rest of the federal budget year. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. The latest continuing resolution Congress passed last week avoided a government shutdown. But even if lawmakers achieve that same feat again next year on the two different dates when the CR expires, there's still a lot of other ways the rest of fiscal 2024 could be messy for federal agencies and their vendors. To talk more about it, we're joined now by Larry Allen, the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And Larry, let's start by talking about some of the implications of the way Congress resolved the latest impending possible government shutdown, which is this laddered CR approach. It's complicated. It's much more complicated than any CR we've ever seen before. What what are the main concerns that that you have with with what's ahead in January and February? Jared, my primary concern still remains that we very much have the possibility of at least a partial government shutdown. In passing the most recent continuing resolution, as you inferred, Congress set up kind of a two-tiered system Uh, The non-controversial agencies, we'll just call them that for sake of identification, uh, their funding is good through January 19th. And I would expect that most, if not all, of those agencies will get their funding for FY24 right around that time. Uh, It's the second set of agencies like DOD and the Department of Homeland Security that we have to watch out for. Those are the ones that, although they're funded now through the beginning of February, there's sharp disagreement. Uh, just with, even within the House representatives, not to mention between the House and Senate, on funding levels, where the cuts are going to come, how much aid we're going to provide overseas, things of that nature. And I just think that uh, you know, we can't discount the fact that there are going to be some members of Congress who won't be happy this appropriation cycle until they get at least a partial shutdown. So we've got to watch that. The other issue that I think people need to be aware of is a 1% sequester, an automatic cut that's going to kick in on January 1st. Congress put that provision in uh, the debt ceiling bill earlier this year, Jared. uh, And they said, look, if we Congress don't do our job and pass all the appropriations bills by the end of the 2023 calendar year, we're going to impose an automatic 1% across the board cut in discretionary spending. Now, surprise. (laughs) They didn't get that done by uh, the end of 2023 calendar year. So we're going to have that. Now, Congress could always restore it, but I don't think that they're really in a mood to do that. Yeah, that automatic cuts just struck me as a weird decision, because if there's anything we learned from the last time we did sequestration in 2013, it's that 
automatic cuts do not work as an incentive to get Congress to do its job. And we obviously saw the consequences of that back then. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty around what that 1% would look like um, because it's it would be subject to some kind of order from the president that would dictate the terms of exactly how it would work. And I guess maybe you have more clarity on this than I do. It would happen midway through the fiscal year when agencies have already spend, been spending at 2023 levels. So that 1% cut would be, you know, it reduce the budget authority for the entire year in the middle of the year. So it would feel even steeper than 1%. Does that seem right to you? It would feel steeper, uh, Jared. And there are a couple of different ways to measure it. The one that you uh, talked about is the most straightforward way. You know, you're here on a continuing resolution. You can't start anything new. And then surprise, here you are somewhere through the year and you can't even spend the money that you've been spending to keep your doors open and keep all the current missions uh, supported. So, you know, you're going to have a problem with that. But another way that a lot of people are looking at it is look at the Department of Defense as an example. DOD is projected to get a spending increase for FY24. So right now they're stuck at FY23 levels, which, you know, frankly, the Department of Defense has learned to manage on that until the end of the calendar year. Now we're going to have to do it for longer than that. And so not only are they not going to get an increase, they're going to get a cut from their baseline. So if you look at the difference that way, that's a pretty stark cut as well, and a pretty stark cut in an area national security, where I don't really think a lot of people would like to see a cut right now. And they have the additional management challenge of being, I think, the only agency that has funding on two different steps of the ladder. They have their Milcon budget in that first tranche that you talked about and the rest of the defense budget on on, on a second step of the ladder that comes later. That's right. You can build all of the uh, military uh, buildings that you need to do, all the military facilities, you might just not to be able be able to put any IT or personnel in. Let's uh, let's pivot here to several really significant uh, uh, rule changes that GSA proposed last week. I know you're watching two of them in particular. One dealing with uh, some more clarity around SICA. Let's let's talk about that and how that would work with schedules and why you think it's a good thing. Jared, what we're talking about here is GSA is proposing to Congress a change in the Competition and Contracting Act that would specifically recognize the GSA multiple award schedule program. When SECA was passed back in the 1980s, I think safely to say before any of us were working in government procurement, uh, they originally called out the multiple award schedules program as meeting the demands of the Competition and Contracting Act, if doing so resulted in the lower lowest overall cost alternative to the government. Traditionally, that's been interpreted as meaning Hey, you know, it's lower if we don't have to start a new procurement from scratch. It's lower if we get to lower our procurement overhead by using pre-existing contracts. And that's always been pretty well understood. More recently, however, there have been uh, some questions about that in GSA and and, uh, the whole move towards low price, technically acceptable contracting has kind of gotten caught up in this definition, Jared. And so what GSA is trying to do is ask Congress that Uh, the language would be modified somewhat so that using multiple award schedule contracts would be in the best interest of the government so long as doing so represented the best overall value. And that's consistent with best value, the best value message that GSA and other agencies are trying to send for many of their acquisitions. Uh, Certainly low price has a place, but so too does best value. 
that's just kind of common sense uh, from everybody's business and personal lives. And so I think this is a good move. I think this is something that GSA has wanted to do for a couple of years. Now they've asked Congress to do it. I hope that Congress will look upon that favorably. Do you see it as meaningfully reducing the number of cases where where agencies feel like they need to do LPTA competitions? I'm not so sure from a customer perspective, Jared, except for the fact that if this uh, modification does go through, it'll be something that GSA and its scheduled contractors will be able to say, hey, we meet the brand new revised SECA definition which is always something that you can play off to increase the visibility of the program and remind people, hey, the schedules are here, they're competitive, they're a good way to buy. I I think internally inside GSA, it will eliminate some confusion about just what that precise meaning is on value versus cost. And I think it might clear up as many internal headaches as it does external ones. The other one that you flagged for us in this week's newsletter is uh, a GSA proposal um, to to make permanent the uh, economic price adjustment uh, changes that were made during the pandemic. Talk to us about why that's a big deal. So this is a big deal, Jared, because the economic price adjustment clause is the way that schedule contractors can increase their pricing on contract. And up until now, they've had four different economic price adjustments clauses in the same schedules program, a lot of it depending on whether or not you have professional services or products. And for products, there have been a 10% cap on how much you could raise your price in any one year. During the pandemic and, and during the time of inflation in the last year or two, when prices obviously were going up by more than 10% a year in many cases, GSA took a deviation from their economic price adjustment clauses to reflect economic reality. And they're to be applauded for doing that. Now what they're trying to do is seeking to make that deviation permanent by saying, hey, GSA scheduled contracts are by definition based on commercial market prices and commercial market habits. We ought to be able to have an economic price adjustment mechanism in place that recognizes fluctuations in commercial pricing as impacting the price that buyers will pay on schedule, whether that's a decrease, which most contractors do decrease their prices in order to remain competitive when they need to do that, or an increase. If you have something, say, we've had in the past, we've had a hurricane take out a substantial amount of uh, wood from forest uh, production and that caused the price of wood-based furniture to increase substantially. And so GSA had to make a special determination that off uh, wood furniture companies could increase their pricing. It's the same thing here, but rather than doing it on a one-off basis, GSA is trying to bake in flexibility across the program. I think that's a good move, too. And what does it mean for the types of information and amounts of information that schedule holders will need to provide to GSA to justify those increases when they feel like they need one? Jared, I think that's a really great question. And I think the thing that contractors need to keep in mind is that they can't assume, in fact, they shouldn't assume that their contracting specialist or contracting officer has all the latest economic data. They may not be uh, reading the Wall Street Journal and Federal News Network as much as other people are. Uh, So if you're a contractor seeking an economic price adjustment uh, on your contract, I recommend that you provide your contract specialist, contracting officer with additional data to support the requested increase. 
look at things that are happening in the commercial market generally, in your market specifically. Keep in mind that to a certain extent, your schedule price is always going to be a little bit behind where you are commercially because you're going to have to show GSA that you have billed and been paid uh, commercially on those increased prices. But aside from the schedule-based pricing data to support your price increase request, I think you need to be prepared to provide a little extra data about what's going on in the economy generally so that the contracting officer understands. That all makes sense. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Larry, thank you as always. Jared, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. 57 minutes past the hour on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Congress avoided a government shutdown again, but the only way to make that happen was to kick the can down the road with another continuing resolution. And this particular one leaves agencies with even more uncertainty than a typical CR does. The Pentagon's chief financial officer is worried about the repercussions for the Defense Department. DOD's picture in all this is uniquely unusual. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric has been covering the latest in the DOD side of the appropriations process, and she joins us now. Hi, Kirsten. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this a little bit. What's going on with the continuing resolutions exactly with DOD? So last week, Congress passed another continuing resolution, which Joe Biden, President Joe Biden signed last Thursday, so the day before the shutdown deadline. And the new continuing resolution has two deadlines, one that expires January 19th for several appropriation categories and one that expires February 2nd. So for the January 19th deadline, that covers things like military construction and several agencies like Veterans Affairs and housing and urban development. And for the February 2nd deadline, that includes government operations like defense. However, this could create the possibility of a future partial government shutdown, which would impact DOD because it has items affected by both deadlines. And the newly passed continuing resolution comes after Congress passed one at the end of September for 45 days. This new continuing resolution would bridge the government through the holidays before it was you know, looking like it could have been another holiday shutdown like there was in 2018. Okay, so yeah, pretty complicated picture, as we said, but but what are the actual repercussions for DOD of, of this complicated picture? So again, it's, uh, you know, impacted by both of those deadlines in the new year, so they'll have to keep track of that. And if all 12 appropriation bills are not passed by the April 30th deadline to avoid sequestration under the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which would trigger a 1% top-line budget cut, the Pentagon will need to figure out, you know, how to ramp down things to in anticipation of that. And having several continuing resolutions also creates uncertainty and stalls new programs. So what's DOD looking to do about it or asking Congress to do about it? So McCord was saying that there's, you know, pay raises that are coming January 1st and the administration is exempting personnel from sequestration, so it cuts will have to come from other areas like contracts. We are already starting to pressurize O&M accounts where a lot of service contracts lie uh, because we're exempting 25% of the budget de facto from from harm under whatever a regular CR or a minus 1% CR. But, but exactly what we would do when OMB might cut apportionments to agencies have not been able to get clear responses on that yet. So I'm starting to think ahead. What are some of the management 
off-ramps we might have thinking back to 10 years ago when we didn't take any off-ramps and, and had to put on the brakes at the end of March, end of April, of course, is even one month later to, to absorb those cuts, in, and now it's less than half a fiscal year. So McCord is also worried that, you know, if there's more continuing resolutions that the government could end up backing into sequestration. He says preparations were made for a shutdown because of the uncertainty that funding would pass. It looks like we're not going to traumatize everyone with having to do all of those shutdown preparations. We've already done some, but to impose them on the whole workforce and go through all of that. But now we need to see some progress in other things. Our partners in Ukraine, our partners in Israel, our own defense budget, our own industry partners, all of our partners and our workforce need us, you know, need some progress on getting the real deal now, not just a continuing resolution. And again, that's Mike McCord, DOD's Undersecretary of Defense for Comptroller Matters and Chief Financial Officer. So, Kirsten, what's DOD at this point trying to do to work around its lack of permanent funding? Uh, obviously, and unfortunately, the department's got a lot of experience at this point in working with CRs. Yeah, I, I mean, besides hoping Congress passes permanent funding, you know, while DOD is waiting for full appropriations, it has been able to use some Ukraine supplemental funding for some innovations and to try to get production for some things. We've had the opportunity to use Ukraine supplementals to make some progress there on particular niche capacities like 155 artillery. But since we are now having trouble getting a Ukraine supplemental pass, we have some other big moves laid into the next one that are stuck just like everything else is. So while, meanwhile, DOD is also almost done preparing its fiscal year 2025 budget, even though it does not have an approved 2024 budget. And McCord says this has happened before, but it can be challenging because the Pentagon doesn't have the final budget from the prior year to refer to as it's making its 2025 budget. All right. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric, thanks very much for the update. Thanks, Jared. And you can find Kirsten's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom.